Pastor Ben and I are in the midst of a series of teaching messages that we've entitled An Inconvenient Truth. And uh, today we deal with another one of those issues that, um, frankly, has become one of the most emotionally divisive uh, cultural, political, and spiritual issues that faces our nation. Our nation is engaged in a great moral debate. And this debate has reached down into our lives and into our churches. Entire denominations today are engaged in a hot debate as they gather for assembly meetings and council, church councils and synods, discussing this issue and offering... uh, legislative memorials to conduct the the work and the life of the church. Entire denominations are splitting over this issue. And there are good people on both sides of the debate. Over the last few years, homosexuality has been in the headlines as never before. And both sides of the issue are weighing in. The passing of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, the uh, recent ordination of an openly gay Anglican bishop in New Hampshire, judges in Massachusetts and California that uh, sought to legalize same-sex marriages, and the proposed federal marriage amendment to the Constitution, all have brought this particular issue to the fore and have caught us all up in uh, a, a debate in our nation. And the issues and the examples that I've just given are just a few examples of how this issue is ripping and tearing away at the moral fabric of our nation. Without a question, there is a great tide that is sweeping across our land that seeks to mainstream and legitimize homosexuality, and not only to legitimize it, but to forcefully put it forth as an accepted alternative lifestyle that, in the words of its proponents, is morally neutral. It's unfortunate, because as we've seen already in this series, that there is this dumbing down of absolute truth in our society. A generation ago, we commonly understood that there was such a thing as sin, and that sin is a serious matter in the eyes of a holy and righteous God, and that for the serious uh, person who is seriously seeking to follow Jesus, that sin is something that should be avoided. Regrettably, as the moral foundations of our nation have been crumbling and been destroyed, there is today no societal consciousness of sin or of absolute truth. But instead, today, we celebrate limitless freedom. In this postmodern world, we celebrate free choice and and the liberty to believe what you want to believe and It's okay for you to believe this, and I'm right, and it's okay for 
this person to believe what they want to believe, and we should not sit in judgment of one another based on our beliefs or convictions. And so it is in that moral climate that, that I address this issue this morning. I don't know that this issue has ever been dealt with from this sacred desk before. But this morning, with the help of God's Spirit, I plunge forward with what the Bible has to say on this inconvenient truth. But before I go any further, I, I find it necessary to share with you some assumptions that I want you to understand, assumptions that I bring to this message so that you will know where I'm coming from. First of all, if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. That if you are a homosexual, or you are struggling with homosexual feelings or inclinations, I want you to know that you matter to God. He loves you. He cares about you. And I believe that He has a wonderful plan for your life. Secondly, I want you to understand that as I preach this morning, that not only do you matter to God, but that you matter to me. Pastors and Christian leaders have not always made that very clear. It's unfortunate. Regrettably, there have been some in the Christian community who have been guilty of ridiculing and speaking in biased and prejudiced ways and intentionally or unintentionally rejecting individuals within the homosexual community. And I want you to hear me say for that and for what they have done, I am truly sorry. There are many Christian people possibly some in this room this morning, who in my opinion need to repent and to need and need to ask Almighty God for forgiveness for the hate that they have either intentionally or unintentionally expressed toward homosexual individuals. If we were honest, I think we would have to admit that far too often many of us within the church have been lopsided in our response to this issue. We in the church have been very good at communicating our convictions on this topic, but we've been very poor at showing compassion for people who choose this lifestyle. We have expressed both in word and in action our disdain and our hatred, not all of us, but some of us, for those within the homosexual community. And we should therefore repent before a holy God. Because, my friend, we are never justified for anything less than loving people, no matter what their sin. Like many of you, I know someone, someone's, actually, who have made this lifestyle their choice. 
Over the course of my life and my pastoral ministry, I have been friends with several individuals, people who are near and dear to me, who have willfully disobeyed God's Word and who have embraced a homosexual lifestyle. I love these friends. They are real friends. I love them. I hate what they do. But I love them. So I want you to know this morning that as I preach, I'm not what you would call homophobic. I'm not afraid of you. I don't find you unclean or untouchable or unworthy. Please know that and hear my heart in this. As I preach this morning, I also, though, want you to understand this. That I am one who believes that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, desires to be the Lord of all of our life, not just part of it. In other words, I feel that true disciples of Jesus, honest and sincere Christ followers, should not and will not compartmentalize their faith. Because there is, my friend, no terrain of our life that should be protected from or immune from Christ's interest. That we lay our lives bare before Christ and that Jesus is not wanting to be only our Savior, but He's wanting to be Lord of every area of our lives, including, as we saw last week, Lord of our sexuality. And those who are serious about following Christ will seek to conduct themselves in ways that please the Lord and that honor and glorify His name. Which leads me to my final assumption, and that is this. I believe that the main way that we know how God wants us to conduct our lives is by reading, studying the Scriptures, the Holy Bible. That God's written Word, not culture, not experience, Not tradition, not sociological studies, but that the Bible, God's Word, is the only trustworthy guide for our lives, our faith, and our practice. And that the Scriptures, for a sincere Christ follower, the Scriptures have the final say. Now, I'm sure that it would be possible for us to introduce all sorts of anecdotal experiences that you and I may have had along life's way, and to some degree those experiences may be enlightening, they might even be helpful in the discussion. But I want you to know that the ideas and opinions that I have on this issue are not formed on what culture or society or psychologists or experience or tradition have said, but my opinions are formed Instead, my convictions on this issue have been formed and rest upon the inerrant Word of God. And I find that to be a place of confidence and safety. When I say that I believe that the practice of homosexuality is sin, I I did not come up with that on my own. I say that because of my adherence to Scripture. The Bible is my final authority, and the Bible has declared that it is sin. Therefore, because I embrace the Scriptures as my guide for faith and practice, I too line myself up with that. 
though it may at times feel politically incorrect or terribly, terribly inconvenient. As we shall see this morning, the Bible declares that a homosexual relationship is an act that is contrary to the will of God for, for humankind. And for me, I don't know about you, I'm speaking for myself right now, for me, because the Bible says that this act is contrary to the will of God, therefore, for me, that's the end of the matter as far as it pertains to God's will for humankind. And nothing more needs to be said. There needs to be no more debate on it. God's Word is clear and definite, as we'll see in a moment. So for me, that's my final authority. Again, that may not be where you're coming from. And you're going to have to work through, you know, do I really believe the Scriptures? Do I believe that it is the Word of God? Do I believe that this is truth? Do I believe that this is something that should govern my life and my practice and my behavior and my actions and my speech and my values and the way I raise my kids and the way I relate to my spouse and all the rest? So as we begin this morning, I, I hope you hear and that further that you understand that as I enter into this subject, I enter into it without homophobia. I enter into it, hopefully, with God's help, without insensitivity. I enter into it without hateful judgmentalism. I enter into it without the, pardon me, the use of derogatory or pejorative terms. And I hope that you'll hear my heart this morning. And you'll allow me to talk very honestly about this issue as a pastor who's trying to teach what the Word of God has to say. And I believe that if you hear me out on this this morning, I hope and I think that you will detect both conviction that is steadfast upon the Word and the authority of God, but also heartfelt compassion. So with that in mind, let's look together at this inconvenient truth. Now, to address this issue, uh, we have to begin with God's original design for human sexuality. We began, if you were here last week, to, to, to introduce that, and we looked at the, the naked truth on human sexuality last week, and I want to build on those thoughts this week. One of the dangers, I think, when we, we discuss and we debate this issue of homosexuality is that, that there are many who are prone to yank out of the Bible selected text. It's called proof texting. They'll yank out of the Bible selected texts about homosexuality and, and take it out of its context and, and discuss this issue where it has no context. I don't want to be guilty of that this morning because I believe that it's absolutely vital that we place a discussion of homosexuality within the larger context of a discussion on human sexuality. And as we saw last week, to understand human sexuality, we must begin with God's created order, God's creation, and, and not with the law. Now, long before the Scripture grapples with the questions, what am I expected to be, or what am I expected to do, the Scripture deals with the question, who am I? And God's design concerning human sexuality and our identity as sexual beings is found in the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, which tells the story of creation, the creation of humanity. Take a look at it with me. The words are projected on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and following. 
the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God made a woman and brought her to the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, there are four foundational truths that I think that we need to learn from that particular passage of Scripture. The first truth is this, that God created sexual identity. Second, that in making sexual identity, that God made human beings. It was His sovereign, willful choice to make human beings male and female. So that after Adam was created, a helpmate, God said it was not good for Adam to be alone and that he needed a helpmate. So what did God do? He made a helpmate for Adam that was made by God, a helpmate that was suitable, a suitable helper, an appropriate helper, and a correct helper who was a complement to, who completed Adam. And for Adam... That completion was found in God's creation. The person was a woman. The third foundational truth that we learn from this passage is that God created sexual intimacy. We discovered that last week, that sex is God's idea. It's a gift, and as long as it's not distorted by Satan and his minions, and we stay within the boundaries of God's design, that that is to say that it's in the context of marriage, that this is God's thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a holy thing. It's a sacred thing. God created sexual intimacy for man, man's pleasure, both male and female. And fourthly, the fourth truth here is that God intended the expression of that sexual intimacy to take place between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. You're going to hear me say this over and over until you're ready to to gag, that God's design was for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. A man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's God's blueprint. That's His manual. According to Genesis chapter 2, Adam is created by God, but he's lonely. Uh, He has all the animal kingdom around him, but none of them satisfy the deep desires and longings of his heart. And so Adam needs someone who is like him and yet is different from him. So what does God do? God says it's not good for my, my man to be alone. He needs a helper suitable to him. And that helper, listen, this is foundational, that helper that God created was not another man. That helper that God created, that suitable helper, that correct helper, that complementary helper for Adam was what? A woman like him, but different. And the divine intention in creating Eve, the woman, is clearly set forth in verse 24 of chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It doesn't say that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his husband or another man or a woman to another woman. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. 
The account of creation is perfectly clear that heterosexuality is God's design for the human race. And full humanity includes both female and male. And I don't need to go into a lesson of biology for you this morning of how wonderful man and woman complement one another. I think you're all grown-ups and you understand that. But we not only complement each other sexually and with our physical bodies, but with our makeups and the way God has designed us and the unique ways that that women uh, see and act and feel and understand and perceive that men and women are the same, yet they're different. You understand that, right? I see some wives poking their eyes. You understand that, right? I love the way that men and women kind of make a whole. When Kathy and I were, were dating a, a very long courtship of three and a half months, uh, one of the gifts that I bought her was... Um, a keychain that had two parts to it. And the way the jeweler designed the keychain, it, it was a, a whole circle that the jeweler had, had divided into two. It had kind of a jagged edge uh, to it. And when the two separate parts were pieced together like pieces of a puzzle, it made a hole. And, and on, on the front of that circle, when you put the two parts together, there was a prayer. It's called the, it's the ancient Mitzvah prayer, which says, May the Lord watch between me and thee while we are apart. And alone, it didn't make sense. The message didn't make sense and the shape of the jeweler's design didn't make sense. But when the two parts came together, it was a thing of beauty. And the message was whole and, and perfect and it was a good thing. So it is in God's Blueprints are designed for, for humankind. He, he designed uh, man, humankind as male and female, man and woman. And full humanity includes, includes both male and female. Marriage between a man and a woman is good and pure and holy. And sexual relationships within the confines of marriage are thus sanctified by God Himself. So, femininity and masculinity are at the heart of God's blueprint and His design. They form the basis for marriage, for two becoming one flesh. Both genders, both women and men, reflect God's image. Not just man that has, was made in the image of God. So was woman. We're both made in God's image. Both genders reflect the image of God. And together, man and woman reflect and honor God as they join together. And there's even some mysterious uh, symbolism there of the unity that is found in the Godhead, in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a, a beautiful thing. Wish we could pursue that even further this morning. We don't have time to do that. But God created men and women in marriage so that our differences, our God-given differences, would complete one another in every conceivable way, emotionally and physically and spiritually. Spiritually. So as one editorial writer put it, marriage is more than merely personal. Marriage is more than a contract. Oh, I wish I could drive this home to young couples who stand before the marriage altar. That marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. Very different. Marriage is a whole lot more than filing joint tax returns and, and sharing health benefits. 
Marriage is a lived out parable of the principles that I think undergird and govern the universe. Part of God's blueprint and design. It's the marriage is the foundational building block of human society. Which is why the Bible says that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, <coughs> pardon me, and the two shall become one flesh. <coughs> so, if that's God's design then, homosexuality must be seen as something outside of the boundaries of God's design for the human race. Homosexuality represents a denial of the twofold nature of man <coughs> as male and female. It's a deviation in the truest sense of the word. And I can't underscore the importance of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, enough. It is the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible rests, and particularly on this issue of homosexuality. Our estimate of man and woman, of male and female, of human sexuality, and of homosexuality must be in accord with the passages we have just read in Genesis 1 and 2. That is one man with one woman in the context of marriage. I want to make, before I move on, I want to make sure that you're with me. If you understood what I just said, would you nod your head or raise your hand or snore or do something? <clears throat> I won't repeat them. <clears throat> so with that backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2, then you have <clears throat> the, the homosexual departure. Homosexual behavior. And I use that carefully. Homosexual behavior departs from God's blueprint in two foundational ways. First, instead of embracing the man-woman design, homosexuality embraces a same-sex, same-gender preference as the blueprint for sexual intimacy. That's not what God designed. God designed one man, one woman in the context of marriage. The homosexual departure, though, replaces God's design with a deviation, a distortion, so that there's a same gender, same sex preference as the blueprint for sexual intimacy. Secondly, the homosexual uh, departure departs from God's intent for sexual intimacy to take place within the confines of the covenant of marriage. And I know, I know, I know, I know that there are efforts afoot to try to change the laws of our nation that govern our states and that govern those who, who uh, solemnize marriage vows to include civil unions and that whole debate. And I'm not going to go there today, okay? I, I'm just not going to talk about this politically today. It has political ramifications, but we don't have time to address that. So here you have God's blueprint on one side, one man, one woman, in the confines of the covenant of marriage. And over here you have the homosexual departure, which is a distortion of God's blueprint. And it should not surprise us then that as you begin to examine the Scriptures and you flip from Old to New Testament, that you discover that God's Word, the Bible speaks about homosexuality and, and says that it is a departure from God's design and therefore should be avoided by anyone who is sincerely seeking to be a Christ follower. Scripture is clear on this. Now, 
I know what's happening. And I know that there are people who are well-meaning and of good heart uh, who are parsing the verbs and pulling the sentences of Scripture apart and want to talk about that the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah was not one of homosexuality, but it was a problem of hospitality, believe it or not. There are all kinds of biblical interpretations and hermeneutics out there that will that are being touted today that will try to convince you that if a, one man is committed to a monogamous relationship to another man or one woman to another woman, that in the eyes of God, if they're, they're committed to one another like a husband and wife are, that if they're monogamous in that relationship, that in the eyes of our God, that it's all right and, and, and should be acceptable and not looked uh, upon as sin. But the Old Testament seems to be very clear. The book of Leviticus, the Bible says, Leviticus 18 and verse 22, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Two chapters later, it adds, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Leviticus 20 and verse 13. But it's not only confined to the Old Testament under the Old Testament Mosaic Law, but it's also discussed in the New Testament as well. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Uh, so you stay awake, why don't you read the Scripture aloud with me? Let's read it together. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men. Exchanged natural, God's blueprint, God's design for unnatural, deviation, distortion, indecent, detestable, do you get any whiff of God's acceptance of this? Any sense that God says, it's okay? Folks, let me save us some time here this morning. Uh, these three verses, two from the Old Testament and one from the New, are just a sampling of the many verses that I could trot out here this morning. A sampling of Scripture. What I want you to understand, if you did a thorough search and research of Scripture... I want you to understand, it is striking, I think, that every single time homosexual practice is mentioned in the Scriptures, it is condemned. It is condemned. There are only two ways you can get around biblical teaching, and they are either gross misinterpretation or you can move away from your high view of scriptural authority. Either you misinterpret what the Scripture has to say on this issue, or you neatly step aside and say, you know what? The Bible is good and it's a helpful book, but it's just a, a book that contains stories and myths and fable, and I'm not going to accept it as the Word of God. I'm not going to accept it as God's Word to us and His manual for living. Uh, instead, I'm going to choose the parts that I want to choose and, and, and live the parts that are convenient for me. But, you know, the inconvenient parts, I'm going to do, on my, I, I'm going to do it my way. 
Well, again, that's a choice that you make. The choice I make is that if I believe this is God's Word and, and I embrace it as, as something that's going to govern my life and my practice, then, then I, I've got to accept it as such. You can only get around biblical teaching against homosexual behavior by gross misinterpretation or moving away from a high view of Scripture as the Word of God. And I believe that homosexuality is not a political issue, though we're trying to make it one. It's not a civil rights issue, though we're trying to make it one. It's not even a tolerance issue, though many are trying to cast it that way. But that it is, in the end, a moral issue. And that the scriptural texts are not unclear or ambiguous. As one of the professors that I've studied with at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, you might be surprised this comes out of a mainline Presbyterian seminary, but it does. There are some conservatives around there. Edith Humphrey has written on this issue. There are no internal tensions on this one. And if you have any doubts on that, read Pittsburgh Theological Seminary's professor, Dr. Robert Gagnon's, his monumental 500-page text called The Bible and Homosexual Practice. It's considered by people on both sides of the debate as the most thorough treatment of the biblical materials in print. God created human beings as male and female. He meant for sexual intimacy to be there and there alone in the context of marriage. And as a result, the Bible sees any departure from that design as outside of God's will for our lives, including homosexuality. Now, there's lots of arguments out there, and some of them are rather persuasive against the biblical writ on this. Arguments against everything I've just said, beginning with what is perhaps the single uh, greatest argument against it. And it is this. Someone will say to you, but I hear what you say, but you don't understand. This is how I was made. God made me this way. Many homosexuals will say that it's unfair, it's even cruel to condemn them for for their natural orientation. They say, well, why should I be condemned for following my, my desires, my orientation? How can a loving God condemn me when He's the one who made me this way? Fair enough. I think that there's something in that argument, something important to acknowledge. Namely, that that people, many people who pursue a lifestyle of homosexual behavior did not set out to be sexually deviant. They really do have a very strong tendency toward that orientation, that behavior. I don't believe that there can be much doubt that some people can have a homosexual orientation that is brought to the surface of their lives through various psychological forces and factors or life experiences. That there is something that, that can be cultivated, developed, catered to, indulged. But having said that, a homosexual orientation is no different than any other life orientation someone can have toward a particular lifestyle that is outside the will of God. Some might have, <laughs> maybe I'm preaching to you now, some might have an orientation toward pride. Some others might have an orientation toward flaring off 
in anger, another for chemical addiction, another for gambling, another for slander, someone else for stealing, someone else for lying. Uh, the, the truth is that, that all of us as God's children, all of us have a certain makeup that shapes us and makes us more prone to a particular temptation than someone else. Now, I may not have mentioned your particular temptation, so just take a sideward glance at me and I'll tell you mine. And obviously, some of you are struggling with it too. We all have carnal desires. All of us have certain makeups that are prone to a particular temptation. Our temptation may not be your temptation and vice versa. So let's play out this idea that legitimates homosexual behavior. Let's say you want to defend your homosexual lifestyle based on orientation. This is the way God made me. You say, hey, I do what I do because I am what I am. Have you ever tested that out? I mean, have you really thought it through to see if that philosophy is true or even works? Because it's not true from a psychological point of view. Most would say that we are who we are. Who we are is a combination of nature and nurture. It's how we are put together and the choices that we make in life. And it's not workable morally either. If your philosophy is that desire should shape values, then that means that if desire shapes values, that means that whatever I desire to do is to be fulfilled without restraint. If I have the desire then, according to the argument, if I have the desire, it must legitimate the lifestyle. But what if my desires are for murder? What if they have to do with molesting young children? You say, you're crazy. Nobody in the homosexual community is saying that. Maybe not yet, and maybe not you. But that's where this philosophy will ultimately lead. And we're already seeing signs of this with many in the homosexual community not simply being champions of homosexuality, but championing ideas like transsexuality and transgender lifestyles. You see, once you make a philosophy like this, your guiding value system and principle, it applies across the board. You can't pick and choose where you want to apply it. Either desire, orientation, legitimates behavior or it doesn't. And when you push on it, it becomes very clear how radical it is to say that an orientation towards something becomes an automatic legitimation of something. I may have moments when my anger, in my anger, I desire to inflict bodily harm on someone. Certainly not on any of you. But for a person who struggles with an anger problem and their life is oriented around an anger reaction, their every orientation has to be guarded because it plays itself out in action. But that's very different than authorizing me to give in to the feeling. The Bible doesn't content, and listen to me on this, the Bible doesn't condemn anyone for having a homosexual desire. But like any other desire that is not according to God's plan and will, 
for your life. The Bible calls you to resist the temptation, to not give in to the desire, to not fall prey to the flesh. The Bible makes it very clear in the book of James, in James 1. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do you see the progression there? Temptation comes through our own desire. But just because desire is there doesn't mean what we want to do is okay. Every one of us has our own unique areas of weakness. Areas where we have desires that aren't of God. As a straight man, I may have desires. Notice I say I may. I don't. I may have desires. Honey, I I know you're listening. I may have desires for sexual fulfillment outside of the bonds of marriage. I may have desires for that with a woman who isn't my wife. But is it okay because of that orientation and that because of the lust of the eye? Is it okay? Does that legitimate my behavior that I would go beyond the bonds of my marriage and and experience sexual intimacy with someone who's not my wife? Absolutely not. When faced with temptation, it it is up to us to choose to either to turn away from that desire or to give in to it. Now, the, the, the individual with homosexual inclination may say, yeah, 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 that's okay for you because you can satisfy your sexual appetites by your, your, in your marriage, in the context of your marriage. But I can't. I can't have these desires satisfied. But again, when you make that argument, that's going back and saying that desire is the governing thing that determines everything in our life. And that's the problem with our society today. We are an over-sex society, and far too many people, forgive this plain preaching, far too many people are thinking with their genitals and not with their brains. I hope you don't find that offensive. Sexual fulfillment is the one area in our life that must be in charge and determine everything. That's what society is saying. Be fulfilled. Let those sexual longings be fulfilled. That somehow that's the one temptation that cannot be fought and have victory over. But there is victory, even in this area. Take a look at what the Bible says on this. 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also, hallelujah, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There is victory. You don't need to be ruled or governed by your desires, by your orientation, by your carnal flesh. But God will provide you a way out for those things that aren't according to His will for your life. Now, I suppose I I could not blame anyone this morning, especially someone struggling with the issue of homosexuality, listening to what I've had to say thus far and concluding that there is no hope. But I'm happy to say that there's more to this story than condemnation. For just a moment, I I want you to look at, as we close this morning, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul, writing to people that he knew well, says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And that is what some of you were, Paul says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. To me, the past tenses in those verses are very significant. Paul says, you were, you were, you were, you were. Once you were this, but also you were washed, you were sanctified, you were transformed. Paul knew that the church at Corinth included adulterers and swindlers and murderers and male prostitutes and homosexuals, people who had been totally, completely transformed and changed by the, the, the gospel of Jesus. Paul was well acquainted with their past lives in that church. He, he knew them well. He knew people in that church who were thieves. He knew people in that church who were liars, who were swindlers, who were practicing homosexuals. But he also knew that they'd been touched by the grace of God and that they'd been transformed by God's Spirit. That they'd been washed from their sins and they'd been justified and their lives had been redirected. How did that happen? Paul is explicit that that change happened because of a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. So that when the adulterers met Jesus Christ as Savior and Justifier and Cleanser and Sanctifier, those former, those adulterers became former adulterers. When the slanderers met Jesus, they were slanderers no more, but their lives were transformed. When the homosexuals met Jesus, they were homosexuals no more. Now, I'm not naive enough to suggest that simply praying a prayer and asking Jesus to come into your heart will suddenly take away the deep desires that you feel within. Nor do I think that by coming to Christ, it will erase years of learned behavior. It's not as simple as that. The homosexual desire is so strong, so intense, so all life-encompassing, that it will not easily be conquered. If you are struggling with this issue, leaving the homosexual lifestyle may be the hardest thing that you will ever do in your life. But I do believe that without Jesus Christ, there is no hope for lasting permanent change. But let me quickly add, I also believe that with Jesus Christ, complete deliverance is possible. And if those in need cannot find the answer from God's Word, then I suppose the answer is nowhere to be found. So let me just quickly uh, list for you some principles that will help you. If you're in this, what you can do. First of all, be completely honest to God about your true condition. God desires truth in the inward parts, so the Scripture says. And until you're willing to come clean and acknowledge your sin before God, you will never be made clean. Secondly, you need to sincerely confess that you are totally helpless to change yourself in your own strength and power. Theologians call this the doctrine of total inability. That is the recognition that without God's help, you don't have a chance. A snowball's chance in hell. You don't have a chance without the help of God's Spirit. Third, uncompromising, tenacious loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ. You need to, if you're, you're wanting to break free and come toward freedom, you need to cling to Jesus Christ and recognize that He is clinging to you. And you, you can't do that just once. But you must make loyalty to Jesus your watchword every day, every hour, every minute, every second. Only a tenacious loyalty to Jesus can sustain you in those inevitable moments of temptation, and He will provide a way out. 
Fourth, commitment to a process of personal counseling. If you want out of the homosexual lifestyle, you need to realize that you have a ton of work that you need to do. And you're going to need someone to help you who can compassionately and carefully lead you along the pathway of change. Find a good Christian counselor who will come alongside of you and do that. Fifth and finally, find a loving, grace-filled environment in which progress can be made. You need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you reorient your whole way of thinking. And you need an environment where you are not simply known as someone who's an ex-gay. And if that environment is not in the church, then where? So that brings the discussion back home. How does the church respond? Some things I think are obvious. I think, you may not agree, I think that once and for all, we need to put aside all comments, crude jokes, derogatory terms. It does no one any good to speak of queers, fags, fruits, or fairies. How would you like to be on the receiving end of some of those labels? All it can do is hurt another person. It can't help them, and it can't help you. And if you run with a, the kind of crowd where you need to say things like that, to deride other people, to make fun of them, in order to be accepted, then I would suggest to you that you might need to get a new set of friends. We must live what we say we believe. We say we are grace-filled and a grace-driven church. My question to the church this morning is, are we? If you became aware that the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you was living in a, in a gay lifestyle, was st struggling with this issue, what would your reaction be? Some of us are scared to death of people like that. Don't you suppose that there are some people who are struggling in their sin and when they visit our churches, they know how we feel? They sense it. They know we don't feel comfortable with them. And they'll choose either to go to church, never revealing the truth, living a double life, worshiping on Sunday, and living another way, Monday through Saturday, or they'll choose to leave the church altogether. Let me say it plainly. The men and women who are practicing homosexuals are made in God's image just as much as you and I are. And we are sinners just like they. And we need God's grace just as much as they do. Scripture says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus died for people who are struggling with this problem just as He died for you and me. And actually, there really isn't any them and us. We're all just people, all made from the same clay. To say that is not to back off one iota from the things that I've already said, but it is to say that we must live what we say we believe. And if the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, if it really does transform lives, then we must offer it to all men and women without exception and without 
restriction. And I know, I know, I know some of you as you hear me speak this this morning, you're thinking to yourself, oh no, I'm scared where this kind of talk is going to lead us. Oh, can you imagine they're going to be sitting in the pew next to me? Let me make it very clear. Can homosexuals attend FAC? Yes. Will they be welcomed here if I have anything to do about it? Yes. Can they find friendship here? Again, if I have anything to do about it? Yes. Will they continue to hear what the Bible has to say? I do have something to do about this. Yes. The church must hold the line both ways. We must, with conviction, say that this is God's will, God's blueprint. Not back off of that. Not shrink back from that truth. But we also must announce with compassion and love that complete deliverance is possible through Jesus Christ. And so I'm sure some of you are scared because you don't know where this will lead us. And if you're thinking that way, then good. I've accomplished my purpose. Anytime you get involved in the real world with real people, it's messy business. And it takes a risk. You risk being misunderstood. You risk being rejected. You risk getting your hands dirty. You risk being taken advantage of. You risk failure. But I see no other way for the church to really be the church than by taking some risk. It's risky business to serve Jesus Christ. So, a final word to those who are listening to me this morning, either here in this room or ultimately by CD or on the website. If you are embracing the homosexual lifestyle or are homosexual in orientation, I'm glad that you're tuning in. I want you to, to feel loved and accepted as you explore the Christian faith and what Christ can do for you. You need to know that you are no different than any of the rest of us in this church who are struggling with other areas of temptation in our life. If I have sounded too neat and clean about sexual temptation and your orientation, I'm sorry. I wouldn't want anyone to do that in my areas of weakness or brokenness. I want you to understand, though, that Christ is working on all of us, every last one of us. Because every one of us in this room is broken. FAC, First Alliance Church, is nothing but a colossal collection of moral foul-ups. In fact, I'm tempted to have you turn to someone and say, Good morning, Miss Foul-up. Good morning, Mr. Foul-up. I'm a foul-up who's been redeemed by the grace of God, whose life has been touched by Jesus. And He's changed my area of brokenness and weakness. And He is making me. He's not through yet. He's in the process of making me whole. Making me like, the, make, making me like His Son, Jesus. And He's wanting to do that for you. 
whether your sin is tem- or temptation is pride or anger or gluttony or slander or gossip or swindling or adultering, He's a God of grace. If you'll open up and acknowledge your sin, who will wash you and cleanse you and redirect your life and point you toward a life that's like Jesus. A life of holiness, faithfulness, and righteousness. Let's go on that journey together, shall we? Would you stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are a holy God. And in Your holy presence, we are all sinners and our righteousness is as filthy rags. Grant hope to those who need it this morning. Give us hearts of compassion to those who are broken. Help us to remember, Lord, that we are a community of broken people whose lives are being changed and renewed by Your Son, Jesus, and the Spirit of God. As You send us on our way today, help us to be people who are people of conviction. But may we not stop there. May we also be people of compassion. And may they see in us the love of Jesus. So dismiss us now, Lord, with Your peace and Your presence. Cause your power to rest upon us as we live this week out for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord.